I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. And we are going to be beginning in verse 5 and be going through this section for several weeks. There are seven principles we're going to be looking at. Uh, We're not going to handle them all today. We're we're going to get close to half, I think. But uh, that's about as far as we're going to get. And so I invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning verse 5, it says, But also for this very reason... Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. To godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. We're going to conclude there this morning. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into the study of this scripture. Well, as I shared last week, we are moving into a section that's going to take us several weeks to get into where we are putting some feet, and we're going to be doing some repetition over some of the things we've already been studying in verses 1 through 4 of Second Peter. And as we do so, we find that Uh, Peter now takes us from people of faith. Remember, we're going to start when we talk about adding to our, and the Greek word really talks about abundantly supplying something more. And so faith is there. We have established that, what that's really discussing, and that is, are we in a condition of being a follower of Jesus Christ? It's not about getting more faith. We talked about that last week. Remember, we're not trying to increase faith. That is not what is being stated here. It is what we are supplying to that faith. And so we talked about the need to direct faith in the right place. Who do you trust? What do you trust for your life? And people trust a lot of things that demonstrate they have enormous faith, much more than my faith. (laughs) Because I could never trust those things. Uh, Whether it be some false religions and the teachings of men, whether it be politicians, whether it be their bank accounts or the monetary system at all, uh, can we trust those things? And yet people do. And then they even do something which is more full of faith. They trust themselves. And that is, uh, you might say, well, that's one of the greatest steps of faith that men have. Yes, because we all know our inadequacies. And it's foolishness to think I can trust myself when I know my failings better than anyone. And yet they do. They trust in themselves and they make them, they think more highly of themselves than they ought to, the Bible says. And so they, they, they lift themselves up and, and exalt the things that should, be, should cause them to be debased. And the Bible says that's evidence of the end times. Men will be lovers of themselves, boastful and proud. And, and that whole belief system being placed in themselves. And that evidence is a lot of faith and especially when we have things that we know we know that we make mistakes we know that we have errors we know that we have uh, uh, faults we know that and yet we believe in ourselves that I can measure what is right and wrong and I can measure what is truth and not truth that I can do those things on my own and that I that that uh, authority is vested here. And that takes a tremendous amount of faith. So it's not a matter of, does, do people have faith? We all have that. We evidence faith at a very young age when you trust your parents for when you jump off the upper bunk into your father's arms. You're demonstrating a tremendous amount of faith. So you have that at a very young age. It is a gift of God granted to all men It is part, I believe, of being in the image and likeness of God that we have that capacity to trust. The question is, where are you putting that trust and to what degree? And many Christians today have a divided faith. It's not that they don't have enough faith, it's that their faith is divided. They trust in Jesus over here in this category, but in other categories we're going to trust in other people, other things, other entities, and yes, even to a degree, trusting ourselves, rather than fully trusting in Jesus Christ. Are we fully relying on God? And that is a really difficult task that we should always be working towards is how much 
of my faith is distributed among all of these. Now remember, this is something that God detests. A divided faith is what led Israel and then Judah into captivity. Because they wanted to serve God one day a week, and then they wanted to serve false gods six days of the week. And God says, no, 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 you can't do that. You're going to come to my house and sacrifice, and then you're going to go up on the high places and sacrifice there as well, trying to cover all the bases. That is unacceptable. It is something God hated. Uh, they're, they're not equal to me, and nor should your faith in them be. You shouldn't have any in them. And we talked about the incredible faith of somebody who paints a rock, prays to it, thinks it's going to control the weather. The Hindu faith. And so we're not talking about increasing faith. That's not what Peter's addressing here. He's saying you have faith, you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and yes, we could spend a lot of time, we did last week, on, on centering that faith and investing it fully in Jesus Christ. But we want to talk about these things that we want to add to faith, these seven qualities that we're going to add to our faith. So I trust in Jesus Christ. Am I going to be complacent in that? Am I settled in that? Am I, is that all there is? I, I, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I got baptized. I got that base covered. Is that it? And Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not as far as it goes. So let's talk about what God expects us to add to our faith. And that word add, again, is the Greek word abundantly supply. It is that you're going to, and it's not a single event. I'm going to add this, now I got that done. Now I'm going to add this, and I got that done. It is rather continuing action that I'm going to supply these things, and I'm going to keep feeding my Christian life these seven qualities. And I'm going to develop them and use them. If we think, well, I can develop them and then I have them in my possession and now I can ignore them, you don't understand it. Um, any skill, uh, and I try to always designate, there are some things that are art, that are uh, talent, and there are other things that are just plain skills that you just need to learn by use. So you learn this skill, all right? And everyone, unless you have some weird disability, can learn these skill sets. But we can lose our adeptness at using them if we stop using them. In other words, that skill becomes rusty is the term we would use. I'm a little rusty at this. Well, why are you rusty at it? Because I haven't been doing it for so long. And so I might have developed this skill as a young person. Uh, I, and now I revisit it 20 years later. Well, I haven't really done that for 20 years. And it's challenging again to get that muscle memory back or to just brush off all those skills and to learn them, relearn them again to a degree. Hopefully it comes back much quicker, but you still ha and you have the knowledge of how to do it, but that doesn't mean you have the adeptness at doing it. And so it is in our Christian walk. These things we need to keep exercising in our life. That we don't arrive at that, get that established, check it off on our to-do bot list, and, and then move on and forget it. Rather, these are skills that I'm going to keep using in my life, day after day, week after week. I'm going to keep doing them. And the more I do them, guess what? The more skilled I am in those areas. They come easier, they come faster, they can grow, they can increase, and now all of a sudden I'm doing things that I couldn't even think of doing perhaps a few weeks or months ago. And anyone who started a new job knows that. And I don't care if it's the most mundane job. You want to get a, a, a job flipping burgers at McDonald's, your first day on the job, you're going to look pretty sorry. You might burn a few, you might have a few undercooked, you're going to, and you're going to be way behind all the other people. That's why they don't ever start you on the grill, by the way. You go to McDonald's, they're not going to start you there. Usually they're going to start you on fries. Dump this in, and when the buzzer goes off, pull it out. And even that, you're not very good at, because what if more than one buzzer goes off? Ah, I'm freaked. Well, then by the time you've been doing it for a few weeks, you're going, you're doing it almost not even looking. 
because of the repetition of that. And this is what we want in our Christian life. We want these things continuously, abundantly supplied so that they are second nature to us. And that's really what we're talking about. Now, how important are these? Can't, I'm on my way to heaven. I prayed this sinner's prayer. I got baptized. I trust in Jesus Christ. How important are these really? Well, to really dis, distill that out a little bit this morning, let's look a few verses after the list. It says in verse 8, If these things are yours and abound, you will not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your fruitfulness in your Christian living is dependent upon this. If you keep working at these things, you will be a fruitful Christian to God's glory. You'll not be barren. You'll be multiplying ministries. You'll be multiplying the knowledge of Christ in us and through us to others. But look at verse 9. If that's not enough, you should have these abundantly. Verse 9 says, If you lack these things, you are short-sighted, you are even blind, and you have forgotten something, that you've been cleansed from your old sins. Because here's what's going to happen. If we stop supplying our faith with this oxygen, if you will, with this with these sustenance of these seven qualities and activities, uh, you are going to not just stagnate in terms of not grow. What's really going to happen is that you are going to regress into your old life. He says, don't you know that if you stop these things, you're blind and you've forgotten. You've been cleansed from your old sins. These things are all expressions of our thanksgiving for being saved, for what God has done for us. I want to tell you I'm thankful. You have saved my life. How can I ever repay you? And rather than just being a turn of phrase, it needs to be a turn of attitude, saying that from now on, I want to live a life that is of such a nature that demonstrates that I remember what Jesus saved me from. I remember my sins that God delivered me from and my sinful ways, and I don't want to go back. I don't want to, and the warnings there in Hebrews are very strong, aren't they? What happens if we go back? To return again is just so much harder to the point of being impossible. And so Peter says, listen, if you're not pursuing these things, if you're not supplying your faith with this constant nutrition that you are short-sighted, you are blind, and you have forgotten what Jesus Christ has done for you. You are unthankful. And the end result is not injury to God, it's injury to yourself. We've already demonstrated the opposite is fruitfulness, so um, if you have these things, you're going to be very fruitful, it'll be exciting, you'll be uh, 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 glorifying God in your life. You forget those things, you come over here, what happens? Oh my, you're barren. You're unthankful. And you're going to regress into the very life that God delivered you out of. Whether you want to call that backsliding or whatever you, term you want to refer to that, um, you're going to be wandering off. And God's, the, to come back from that is very difficult. The question that he, the writer of Hebrews says is, can you crucify Christ again? Or you're, you know, to, how do we restart that once we regress to that point? So, we should have in our mind, just based upon, and I'm going to keep revisiting these two verses pretty much every week, because I want you to understand the significance of this. These are not options, but you do need to have your will engaged. So, in that sense, you don't have to do them, but if you want to survive and grow and thrive as a believer, you need to do them. But you must choose. I can't force that upon you. I can't do it for you. You're going to have to choose to participate in these yourself. And that's why Peter says, listen, you have this stuff. You have the capacity to do it. If you choose to do this thing, you're going to be fruitful. You're going to really enjoy your Christian life. You abandon and avoid these things. You are going to be barren. 
you are going, it's like you're spiritually blind to your, to your own uh, detriment, and you are unthankful. You have forgotten what you were saved for. And this should be concerning to all of us. And so these seven things um, are critical. You say you believe in Jesus Christ. Good start. But that is just what all it is. It is the start. And if that is as far as it ever goes, we should be very careful about declaring to people that they are for sure going to heaven. When I attend a funeral and the funeral is happening because a young person died because of a lifestyle that, by the way, promotes death. And all, I'm looking around and, is, and I see the, the nature of the people around me that were his quote-unquote friends, but I have a pastor stand up in front of well, at this date he prayed the sinner's prayer, so no matter what else happened in his life, we know he's in heaven today. And I go, what a horrible thing to say at this funeral. Why? Because all of his friends who are living the same kind of life get a message. And what is that message? All I have to do is pray the sinner's prayer, do this religious ritual called baptism, and then I can be assured a place in heaven no matter how evil I live from this day forward. And nothing could be farther from the truth of God's word. Nothing. And for this reason, many are going to be thinking that when they're arriving at this wondrous scene of a great throne and a mighty one standing on it, that they're going to strut up there and say, I pray this sinner prayer. You know what's going to happen to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. That's what's going to happen. They're going to be at the great white throne, not the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be at the wrong judgment and not know it till they arrive there and they go, oh, you mean that wasn't all there was? No. That was a rit ritual you did that did not satisfy God, did not please him, and did not transform your life. And that is why that message has to be clear. And I've had family very upset at me because I didn't preach that way at their son's funeral. And I was like, where's the evidence? Well, he got, and I, I mean, beeline to me right after the funeral, say, oh, but, 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 but. He went to Sunday school and he prayed this prayer and he was baptized back then. You just didn't know any of that. I was like, there was zero evidence in his life that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Zero. And his whole death is derived by a lifestyle that evidence he didn't follow Jesus Christ at all. But you want me to stand up here in front of all of these crowds and, and, and this, on this occasion, different occasion than the first one I mentioned, on this occasion, the crowd needed to hear the gospel badly. This guy was really deep into the uh, music scene of Albuquerque and, and even the country. And apparently he had some guitar of some big person that was important to all of them. And I think there was more people concerned about that guitar than anything else. Um, and so I'm sitting there, I'm giving the gospel, and, I says, and boy, the parents were so upset. I said, how can you be upset? All of these people from these, that I would never have met, and you probably would never have met. I mean, it was like a rock star hall of fame there, I guess. I didn't know any of them, because I don't know any of them. But they need to hear the gospel. They didn't need to hear, this person prayed the sinner's prayer, got baptized when he was eight years old, and now he's for sure going to heaven. That is the last thing they needed to hear. Because they could replicate that in their life. And then they would be in hell forever and it would be my fault. Because I wanted to make a couple of parents feel better. No, our sensitivities are upside down here. Saying I have faith and not adding and supplying that with the energy and the, and the nutrition it needs to be sustained faith is blind. It is unthankful. It is ignorant. It is barren and dangerous. 
And so we say these seven things. We're supplying these things? I thought God supplied everything I need for salvation. Yes, we have established what faith is last week. God, trusting in God's supply of all that is necessary for the forgiveness of my sin, of the, me becoming a new creature, which we're going to talk about today, and about becoming a child of God and having access to all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Yes. Now, but if that faith is all there is and is not sustaining faith, the Bible challenges it over and over again. And that happens in the gospel. Jesus does that on multiple occasions. He says, oh, they believed in him. And then he says something controversial they didn't like. And then they left following him. And he says, well, not all people have faith. I was trying to get them from this point of belief to this point of belief. Remember we studied that in the Gospel of John many, many months ago. Okay, years maybe. Okay? We need that. We need to recognize there is saving faith and there is the initial uh, concept of, oh, I believe this. Well, fine, the demons believe that. And they're even afraid of that knowledge of who God is. You say you believe that? Prove it. That's what James is all about. You say you have faith? Show some works that evidence that faith. If your faith in Christ has not transformed your life to become like Christ, it is likely insufficient. You have a divided faith. You're not fully trusted in Jesus Christ. So let's get into these seven things that we are so necessary for us to grow our faith. Not, I'm sorry, to grow, to add to our faith, to supply our faith. I use that same phrase, to grow our faith, and I was not going to do that. So we trust in Jesus Christ, what's next? Well, Peter says, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue. Supply your faith with virtue. Now this is kind of an interesting Greek word, and we have a couple of things here. If you look up the word virtue in the English dictionary, you'll get something along the, I, the concept of, of a moral position, that you're going to do good things. You're going to be a moral person. And you're going to, um, and a lot of times this is, the word, we use the word virtue often in terms of a social setting. That is, that I'm moral in my engagement with other people. I'm going to do you right. I'm going to do right by you. Um, and whether that be, I'm going to not lie to you, I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm going to be just, I'm going to take responsibility, I'm going to be helpful, I'm going to, I'm going to be a good citizen. And normally that term virtue is that, that, we use that in the English language to describe that attribute of just being morally upright toward others particularly. Certainly there's some element of personal virtue, personal uprightness in, involved in this concept as well, but predominantly we use it uh, as in a social setting. And so the Roman Empire was said to be established on these 15 virtues, or set, depending on whose list you want to go by, uh, that, that they are things that in order to function as a society, we all need to have these qualities about ourselves, whether it be modesty and, and uh, uh, justice, uh, truth, veritas, uh, well, I could go through them, but um, we have all of these. And the whole idea is this is how we are going to function as a people, is by treating one another well and morally upright. Now, um, Greek philosophy used this same term a little differently. And rather than, and the question is, is any of, is Peter or Peter's readers Greek philosophers or exposed to Greek philosophy? Probably not. Okay, maybe a few of them. Uh, after all, they're in the dispersion, they've been exposed to Greek philosophy, certainly. But Greek philosophers use this exact same term to refer to something fulfilling its, what it is. And so, uh, let's just use an example. Uh, so I, I have this butterfly here, and if this butterfly does butterfly things really well, like, every, like the perfect butterfly, you know, the Disney butterfly, then it is virtuous. 
It is the most butterfly butterfly you've ever met. It has lived up to what it is. And that's how they would use this word, virtue, that we translate virtue. Is that it is, it is, it is fulfilling what it is. Now, I'm not here saying that Peter is a Greek philosopher. I'm not trying to bring Greek philosophy into this. I'm just saying this is one of the uses of the word. And rather than picking one or the other, the English use of the word virtue, I'd rather bring both concepts in because they are both true. And the concept here is that if I'm going to call myself a Christian, I'm going to call upon Jesus as my Savior and Lord, that now I'm going to be the fulfillment of what it means to be a little Christ. I'm going to try to be as Christ-like as I can. And yes, that is going to bring in a social moral standard in your life. And, and we're, I'm going to talk about something else here in a minute, but that I'm going to be as much like a person of faith as I should be. I'm going to be a model of faith. I don't want to be the dredge of faith. I don't want to be the backwash. I, don't want, to be able, I want to be a model citizen in the community of God. I don't want people to scratch their heads and say, I wonder if they're, well, they say they're a Christian, but I don't know. No, I should be a model of that. I say, oh, yeah, if anyone's a Christian, I know it's that guy. It's her over there. She's the most Christian person I know. We should be a model of that. And so that is involved in this word virtue in the Greek, that I'm going to be the real thing. I'm going to be the pinnacle or the model of it. I'm going to be the most Christian Christian you know. Now, I come to this, I say, okay, if I'm dealing with discipling somebody, and they made this profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and that they want to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to build this list, and by the way, the commentator says the list doesn't build upon itself, but then every commentator in his description of this builds it upon themselves. Because the language does that for you. You're going to add to this, this. And then you're going to add to that, to this, that. And then you add to that, this other thing. And then you add to this other So it builds. And the notion that these things aren't uh, in a chronological order, I think, is denying how the whole verse is set up. And so let's view it that way. Now, having said that, I have a problem with the order. We want people to be the model Christian before we teach them anything. Do you see that? So after faith, add to your faith, it, supply your faith with virtue, and add to your virtue knowledge. And to me, that's reversed. Aren't we supposed to make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them all things that I have commanded you? And so we should be adding to their knowledge first. Knowledge, in my mind, should be first. And this has really bothered me for weeks now. I've been like, why isn't knowledge first? Um, well, I, I'm going to share with you my conclusion. <laughs> hopefully it's more satisfying. Hopefully it's satisfying. It satisfied me. Okay, we'll put it like that. If it's dissatisfying to you, um, you can tell me afterwards and I'll explore it some more with you if you want to because I'm not done necessarily exploring this order of these seven attributes or elements. Uh, why does virtue come before knowledge on the list? Don't we need to know what, God, what pleases God in order to, to be that? Don't we need to know what it means to be a Christ-like, to be able to be the model Christian? And I just want to share with you that, again, I see this as a cycle, that I'm not going to stop doing one of these and go on to the next one, but rather they are a circle. As soon as I get done and I reach this point, I'm going to start in another perhaps another area, maybe in multiple areas, I'm at different points on this circle of supply. And so, uh, why is virtue before knowledge? And I will contend with you is because my conclusion is that it is because of the new creation that God has made you. 
To come to know Christ as your Savior requires that your conscience is reawakened by the Holy Spirit. Called the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So someone confronts you and says, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You get, what? No, I'm not. And then you start thinking about, oh, I am. And then you start to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and you be, weep over the fact that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you say, I'm the worst sinner there is. How could Jesus even love me, let alone save me? Because I, we begin to evaluate our life by the holiness of God instead of the, comparing ourselves to criminals <laughs> or gang members or the unpopular people or, or ugly people or whatever. Whatever is in your mind, you're better than others. Uh, then we, we come in and we realize, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner and I'm weeping over my sin. And that sensitivity to sin is necessary for us to come to this faith relationship with Jesus Christ because then we're coming before him asking his forgiveness, and, and he comes into our life, and the Holy Spirit, it says, makes us a new creation. All things are passed away. Everything becomes new. It is not because I know everything there is in the Bible, but because I have a changed attitude towards it, and I already see, should see that transformation happen immediately in my life, even before I am instructed in it. How can that be? Well, because of two things. Well, three. You have... A conscience that God gave you. And as you come to know Christ as your Savior, that conscience is reawakened. It is darkened before Christ. It is awakened by the power of the convicting of the Holy Spirit. And that will not go away as you become more mature. It will actually be fine-tuned in your life. You'll become more and more sensitive to his convicting work when you read God's Word and you go, oh man, I haven't been doing that at all. Why am I not conforming myself to this instruction in God's word? And the Holy Spirit will convict you, and then you have a choice of either obeying it or ignoring it. Right? So, we have a conscience reawakened. And now, you have this sense that God has given you by being created by him to know right from wrong at some degree. And yet, it's not really, it's derived. It's, it's, I said created in you. It's derived, right? Where do we get the knowledge of good and evil? Anybody? Where did you get the knowledge of good and evil? We got it from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from our forefathers, Adam and Eve, right? In their act of disobedience to God. And all we're calling for is obedience. So we have here an opportunity to say, well, I have a new conscience. No, you have awakened conscience. And the newest believer knows this. They have, because they, they, to come to Christ required them to be convicted of their sin, now that they are a believer, they want to do something different. And they want to, and, and everyone knows, because if these were the sins I was convicted of, I know that as a believer, I shouldn't be doing those sins. I don't have to be taught that. These are what I confessed as sin, to become a Christian. And so I know that a Christian shouldn't be doing these things because I felt guilt from these. I felt a remorse. I had godly sorrow over this. And I came to Christ and he cleansed me of those sins. Why would I ever go back to them ever again? Right? And so that, that idea of what it means to be a Christian is in, inherent in the process that to have become a person of faith means you already have identified sin in your life. Now replace that with righteousness. Can we develop that further? Of course. But why is it, you don't need to teach people that. Because if we've done the salvation process properly, and we've gone through it as we are studying on Sunday night, and we have instructed about these areas, and they have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, now they know what sin is, they're sensitive to it, and on the other side of salvation, they're going to be very sensitive to it. Almost more sensitive than the mature Christian. This is what Paul writes about in Romans. He says, um, why is it that some of you can't eat meat? Well, it's not the mature believers who couldn't eat that meat. It was the immature believers. Why? 
because it was so near. They had just received Christ their Savior. They had just been saved from what? Idolatry. And idolatry was sin. They worshipped at rocks and uh, stones and statues, and, and they worshipped all these false gods of the Greeks and Romans. And part of their worship was to bring their meat and offer it on the altars, and, and then they would take it after it was blessed by Apollo, so blessed by Mercury or blessed by Venus, blessed by... Yeah, you notice all those names? Blessed by all these false gods, and now we take it home and eat it as part of our worship. And so when they first became a Christian, they had an extraordinary sensitivity to that. It says, I can't eat that. That's been offered to those idols. Well, Paul says the mature Christian over here realizes an idol isn't anything but a rock. And it doesn't matter that much. But for the new believer who wants to be a model Christian, says, I can't do anything associated with that old life. It's too raw. I just repented of that. How can I participate in anything like that right now? And we who are mature should be sensitive to that. And not uh, with the expectation that their lives have been radically transformed. And so before we even get to teaching them, there should be evidence of that powerful working of Christ in their life, that there are areas in their life that are now virtuous that weren't before. How did they know that? Because that's how they came to Christ to begin with. Secondly, the fact is, is that everyone on the earth knows what a Christian should be like. In fact, for many of them, what do they say? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites, because they should be like this, 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 but instead they're just like us, that, 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 right? So the world knows, not perfectly, but they have some knowledge of what a Christian should be like. That we should be kind, that we should be agents of peace and not war, that we should be honest, that we should be hardworking. I mean, these are just attributes that, that the world just says, well, that's what Christians should be like. And they all know that. Um, and, and you've heard me say before about you know, Gandhi says, well, I would be tempted to become a Christian if more Christians lived like Jesus taught them to. I mean, that's a statement of absolute foolishness on his part because he is not becoming a follower of Jesus because others who claim to be followers of Jesus don't follow him very well. That's just idiocy, which is why he's lost. He is a fool. He claims to be wise, but he's a fool. He's refusing to follow the instruction of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings because others don't follow it right. That's silly. And so we come to this and we recognize the world knows what Christians should be like. And so when someone says, I'm going to become a Christian, they don't sit there mostly if they're taught properly and they have a proper faith event in their life. They're not going to come on the other side and says, well, I'm going to walk as close to the world as possible. I don't, uh, you know, I just... I don't want too much to change in my life. No, I'm going to become a Christian. I should want to become the real thing. Which means that I, what my, maybe some of these preconceived notions of what Christians should be like were a little off base, didn't have a lot of foundation, but they were expected, and they know that their friends are looking for that. And if I really want to have an impact on my friends for Christ, I'm going to be to them what they expect Christians to be to them. I'm going to be virtuous. I'm going to be in the social setting. I'm going to be to them Christ, what they expect Christ to be. Sacrificing. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be all these things. Why do I know to be those things? Because I know what they were looking for because I once was looking for those things. And if I now have been transformed by Christ, I want my friends to be transformed by Christ. In order for that to happen, I need to be a model to them of what a real Christian is so they can say, boy, he really got something. How did that happen to him? And I can share, here's how it happened to me. Third, Never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he has made you a new creature. 
And that begins immediately. All things are passed away. All things have become new. And the opportunity to be, have this desire, maybe it's not very well informed, but a desire to be like Christ. That's what we're looking for. And I want to share this again with you. It is really hard to teach people who think they have nothing to be taught. Let me say that again. It's really hard to teach people who think they have nothing to be taught. That is, they think that they know everything and, and they have no willing or desire to learn more. They are complacent or they are self-satisfied or, or just don't see the, the value of it. Um, and so they, or they think they've arrived. Those people are almost impossible to teach anything to because they don't want to learn it. But what the Holy Spirit does in our transformation at that faith event, that we have faith, how can I add virtue, is simply the, I want to be like Christ. I want it. I want to be taught. I, and the Spirit has put this hunger in me, this thirsting in me, for instruction in God's Word. And that in and of itself is virtuous. To desire after the truth is itself one of the greatest virtues of the Christian life. I want to know more. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to, to impact someone's life so that now when they once made fun of and of God's word, once ridiculed it, uh, once just ignored it, that now suddenly they just want to devour it. That itself is necessary before you can teach them. Because if they don't think they have anything to be taught, you're wasting your breath. And that's why at some point people think, well, I brought my children to church every week, and I brought them to church, I brought them to church. But if they didn't want to learn anything, it will have done them no good. Where do they get the desire to learn? Well, they can get some of that from the parents. They can get some of that from our society. But ultimately, they need that desire from a right relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if I don't have this desire to know more, to, to lay hold of truth, then something is amiss in my relationship with Christ. If it is boring to me, if it is irrelevant to me, if it is I could take it or leave it, then something is wrong. Because one of the first virtues is a desire to be taught, to know. I want to know Christ. I want to be instructed in his word. I want to know what pleases him, what displeases him. I want to increase my knowledge. And if there's not an interest in increasing your knowledge of God, something is wrong. Because this is one of the first virtues that comes with your faith. You have faith. Supply that faith with this desire, this virtue. I want to be a model Christian. I want to show the world that I have close ties because I was just part of them, what it means to be a Christian. I know what their expectation is. I'm going to try to meet that expectation. I know what my sins were. I'm going to abandon those sins. And I want to know more. And so we talk about why is virtue first on the list. I think this is where I've come to, is my conclusion, because I would have written this differently. But having thought on this and dwelt on the power of the, the salvation event, it makes perfect sense that Peter starts off saying, add to your faith virtue. You're not going to stop doing that. It's continuing action. But you can do that even before you really have extensive knowledge of God's Word or any base knowledge of God's Word. Everybody knows what are positive and good qualities um, and, and characteristics that should be there in a person who is transformed by the power of Holy Spirit. Boy, I might get through the next one. 
So let's go to the next one. Now we get, that moves us to knowledge, right? I hunger and thirst because I want to know more. So add to your virtue knowledge. Slightly different word than the knowledge that we were using in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the Greek have a lot of words for knowledge. Um, this is a slightly different one. And so we're really, uh, the other ones um, were more uh, general in terms of the concepts, idea knowledge, uh, the concepts of God, of Jesus Christ, and it's kind of the, the bigger conceptual knowledge. When we get to this Greek word for knowledge, it's much more of the practical knowledge. Okay? So if you think of the knowledge of Christ we talked about uh, up here in, in verses 1 through 3, verse 2 particularly, be multiplied to you the knowledge of God, of Jesus Christ our Lord. And even later on, we use the word knowledge uh, in verse 8, unfruitful the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greater conceptual knowledge. This word is a little different. It's going to be used here. It's about practical information. Add to your faith virtue, to your virtue, to your desire to be the model Christian, add some practical information. <laughs> what does that really mean, to be a model Christian? What does God want from me? And as we talked about last week, I don't challenge that and say, why should I have to do that? Because I've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to please God even if it doesn't make sense to me today, one day it might as I mature in Christ. And so I get to these, and this word is wonderful. Get the little practical things. Add to your virtue little practical things. Does it matter what I eat? Does it matter when I eat, how I eat, how much I eat? Does, it, does God care about these things? Well, he's got a lot in his scriptures. I mean, he cared in the Garden of Eden what you ate, didn't he? Before there was sin, God cared what you ate. You can eat anything you want, just don't eat those two. No, no, don't eat that one. Then later on, they couldn't eat the other one because they'd eaten the first one. You can eat anything you want of any tree. I didn't say you can eat any creatures, but of any tree, but not that tree. So God cared from the very beginning. He doesn't care all the way through to the very end. Um, and so this practical area, what should you wear? What, what should your life look like? What should your hair be? Oh, let's pick on that one. What should your hair be? Well, Corinthians makes it very clear. Women should have long hair. Men should have short hair. And in Old Testament, we can even add apparel. You should not be dressed in women's apparel. Uh, men should look like women. Women should look like men. And so I can go through that. And that's all very practical information. And we can go through. And, and the question is now, is your virtue now informed? Now I can build a list beyond, well, I'm not going to sin, so I'm going to try to do good things. And I know what the world expects out of Christians, so I'm going to try to be that. But now I can get this practical information from God's word of exactly what God requires. What does God want in worship? Well, I can be very practical about that. You know, I'm not going to come before God with... You know, I can look through Scripture and I can say, you know, I want the testimony of David. I'm not going to offer to God that which costs me nothing. What is that testimony of? Sacrifice. I understand that God is well pleased when we sacrificially worship. Sacrifice should be part of our worship. Not killing dead animals, but that whole idea that my worship is going to cost me something. It should cost me something. But we have people that refuse to worship because it costs them something. I don't want to have to dress up. I don't want to have to get, go sit in a service. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to that. I don't want to have to that. And I'm like, because you don't want to worship with God's people in a setting that is appropriate. You want to sit at home in your jammies, uh, eating your Fruit Loops, uh, sitting in front of your TV and call it worship. And God calls you to something much more doesn't he? Why? Well, maybe you don't understand all of the intricacies of why. You don't have to. If you've been transformed, you want to please God. And he said, he gives us the command. 
And so I can go in. This is practical knowledge. We need to be trained in the practical things. And that's why books like First and Second Corinthians are so helpful. Exactly. And, and you can't believe how much those two books inform our worship. They tell us how to do communion, how to do a love feast, how to worship, how do we handle uh, the gifts of the Spirit, how do we do all these things. What should we wear to church? Are you informed? You have been because I've preached through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You've been informed. The question now is, are you going to add that knowledge to your virtue? Are you going to up your game in virtue of being a model Christian and let it be informed by God's word and let it be, <laughs> what do I want to say, <laughs> modeled by that? Am I going to let God's word inform me to such a degree that I'm going to conform my actions, my worship to the scriptures in every practical area? And this should be the desire. If God is real in our life, you want to really increase and grow. You want to add to your faith. You don't want to stagnate. Add to your faith virtue, but then make sure your virtue is better and better and better informed throughout your life by the practical knowledge of God's word. How does God want me to sing? Does God want me to sing? Well, we have a command. Repeatedly. Greet one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart. So maybe if you think you don't have a very good voice, at least tap along. You know, you could do that at least, and it would help me out a lot. <laughs> I do this because I can't keep track of time otherwise. We'll slow down and speed up and slow down and speed up because that's just how I sing in the shower, so it should work here, right? No. God commands us in all these very practical areas. We're not talking about the sphere of spiritual knowledge. That's talked about in verses 1 through 4. It's talked about in verse 8. But here in verse 5, these practical areas. Am I willing to let them guide my virtue? Or do I just simply stagnate at this virtue of the new believer? And that's what Paul was concerned about. That's what the writer of Hebrews was concerned about. Get past the milk get into some meat, not only spiritual depth of knowledge of the first category, but even practical knowledge, the second category of knowledge, to inform your virtue. I should be like this. I should be like this because the Bible says that. And you might say, well, I didn't know the Bible said that. I was like, well, then you should hunger and thirst after that knowledge. Not just the big knowledge, but the practical knowledge. How do I do this? How do I do that? What is this? What does God desire? What does he please? What is this best over here? And it is disturbing how impractical many Christians are in terms of their belief system of what pleases God. When God just lays it right out there. He's not hiding what it pleases him. The rules are set out there and they're not really hard and fast rules because he allows you to choose which ones you want to obey and which ones you don't want to obey. If you don't want to obey his rules, okay, but don't expect his blessing. And don't blame him when your life isn't blessed. When you have no spiritual growth, where you have no increase in your knowledge and unity of faith, you don't have opportunities of ministry. Don't blame him. He's, he gave you the information not only the big picture, but the practical things. Do this to please me. You refuse to do it. Don't blame him when he won't bless your life. Take responsibility, that's a virtue, for yourself. Because saying, I just choose not to do that. I know God's word says that. I choose not to do it. And I say, well, okay, I'm done teaching you. What? And I've walked away from conversations like that. I've showed you something in God's word. You say you don't want to believe it. You don't want to live it. You, you say, yes, I know it teaches that, but I choose not to live it. I have my reasons, excuses, for not conforming to this practical teaching of God's word. And my 
normal thing on a personal level is to say, well, I'm done then. Because if you are, have a hardened heart to allowing the knowledge of God's word to practically guide your quote-unquote virtue, then you are blind, spiritually blind. And you have forgotten that God has saved you from your sins, and you are spiritually barren, and you deserve it. And for me to continue teaching in that setting is for me to throw precious stones to nasty, dirty animals, right? Pearls before swine. The swine isn't the lost. The swine are Christians that don't want to have their virtue informed by the knowledge of God's word in a practical way and conform themselves to that knowledge and thus grow in their virtue. And they don't really deserve to be taught anymore because they re rebel against what they know is God's will and they reject it. And so I say, well, pastor, you te keep teaching because I assume that I'm probably not teaching you. I'm teaching somebody else who has already desired and demonstrated a willingness to conform. You just get to hear, listen in while I teach other people. How many of you are shocked by that? See, I don't think about the people. I'm thinking about the message when I'm pre pre preparing it. But why do I keep teaching? Well, because there are some that still want to please God. They want to let the knowledge, influence, and in fact, tremendously impact their virtue. They want to increase in that area. So they increase, they add to virtue their knowledge, the knowledge of God's word on a practical basis so that now it is impacting all these various areas of life, not just these big spiritual realities, but rather these very practical daily quote-unquote mundane things that God really does care about. Elsewise, why have all these instructions in God's word in these areas? You want to know the model? Read God's word. That's the model. Do you still want to be a model Christian? Do you? Really? then you better go through it. I told you, one of the biggest studies we did in pastoral preparation was First and Second Corinthians. How do we do this? How do we conduct this? How do we conduct this? As pastors leading a church, I want to make sure I conduct the communion table properly. I want to make sure that we do our worship properly. I want to make sure that we're doing uh, the thing about uh, between male and female properly. I want to make sure the leadership is doing it properly. We have these books of the Bible that... Every Christian should say, well, I want to be right in worship. I should at least try to be right in practical areas one day a week. And so I'm going to sit down and read First and Second Corinthians and figure out what does God require of me. You have something against your brother and you sit down to offer sacrifice, leave it. God isn't interested in that. Why? Because in your heart you hate a brother in Christ across the room or one that's not even there because of your abuse of him. You have, some, you have a fence there? Resolve the offense, then come and worship me. What a big difference Saturday nights would be if everyone took that to heart and made sure that I don't want to go to church tomorrow if, if I have offenses all over the place. And sometimes those offenses are within our very families. Oh, that we would let knowledge inform our virtue and this very practical knowledge calls us to that. I can't get to the last one. Um, I should because self-control is an intimate part of this process of applying knowledge to virtue. It requires incredible self-control to do that. And we're going to talk about that next week, I guess. Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for our time and your word. And we pray that we might be more and more careful in seeking to live out our Christian life. Not just to say I'm a Christian, but to be a Christian, to be the model 
of Christianity to those around us. And where we are uninformed in that, Lord, help us to be informed. To search out the scriptures. And Lord, where we are unwilling to apply that knowledge to our virtue, Lord, convict us. Give us that unsettledness with it till we conform. That we might have your hand of blessing firmly upon us without reservation. Lord, we need your help in all of this. We thank you for Holy Spirit indwelling us to guide us into your truth. Lord, we pray that you might find us ready to receive his ministry as well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.